Good morning, my global friends. It is Isabella Lundbecker, and welcome you to Legacy Leaders Podcast. This morning, I have a very special guest. It's dear to my heart, a strong, powerful woman that I respect very much that has been blazing the paths less traveled for over decades. And her name is Deb Hillman. She is crisis PR expert, consultant, trainer, speaker, but also international executive board member of International Association of Business Communicators. Wow, what a phenomenal background. Boy, do we need great business communicators right now. How are you, Deb? I'm doing great, Isabella. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I was really surprised to see that you're not in Denver, Colorado anymore. We miss you here. <laughs> uh, well, I can tell you I, I miss the people in Denver as well, although I have to admit after moving back home to Indiana, uh, after being gone for 20 years, we had a very mild winter here, and I can't say I missed all the snow that you had in Denver this year. <laughs> very good point. So since the Indiana treating you well, and, and you made some really good decisions on personal level to move back, so that's great to hear. Like anticipating already the global pandemic in a way, right? <laughs> Yeah, you know, my, my husband and I were both born and raised in this area, and, and we lived here most of our lives. And uh, after spending uh, 15 years in Denver and absolutely loving it out there, we saw changes happening with family members, uh, elderly parents, for example, and um, just things going on, and we decided it was time to come home. So um, we uh, sold our house last summer and, and packed up and moved back home to Indiana. That's great. I'm really happy for you and uh, glad to hear that. And I'm sure more than ever you can feel now with everything that is happening currently, which we'll get into personal and professional crisis, uh, you are lucky to be very close to your loved ones. And that is beautiful. So I'm, I'm really happy for you. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's actually worked out very well professionally. Um, as you know, I work from a home office and can really work from anywhere these days. And, and what I found is I'm actually geographically closer to most of my clients now. So uh, I've got a lot of uh, happy clients that I'm uh, just a couple of hours down the road by car. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great to hear. So uh, with that note, obviously, uh, with your amazing background and doing something for so long, do you mind, Deb, sharing a little bit? How did you even get to deal with a crisis and PR specifically uh, and obviously communication component that is essential uh, for success of any PR, specifically crisis PR? Do you mind sharing a little bit about your background and how did you uh, got into those hot waters? <laughs> sure. Well, I'm one of those rare people, I think, that um, still does for a living what I went to college to learn how to do. Uh, I got a bachelor's degree in public relations uh, from Purdue University um, many, many years ago. And um, my early career, actually, after I, after I got out of school, was um, in advertising and marketing. Um, I, I did a lot of work in the marketing communications area, but I've been a business communicator for my entire career. Um, and so I spent, um, you know, I've spent a little bit of time in, in all the disciplines of business communications. Um, but it was really, I would say in the late 90s that I really found my passion. And I had the opportunity to go work in the healthcare industry mm -hmm. after having worked in manufacturing and higher education and working in the media. Uh, and I went to work for um, a healthcare uh, provider here in, uh, based here in South Bend. And uh, 
uh, moved up very quickly through the organization, um, mainly thanks to a couple of things. One, some hard work, but also um, earning some trust and, and finding a couple of mentors within that organization that were really pivotal in moving my career forward. Um, one was the CEO of the health system, um, a phenomenal woman named Patricia Vandenberg, um, and then my direct boss in the corporation, the late Mary Catherine Grant, who was um, a brilliant, brilliant woman. And she um, took me under her wing. She took a chance on me when I didn't have a lot of experience and um, taught me a great deal about leadership in large organizations. And if it hadn't been for those two women, I think I, I wouldn't have advanced to where I am. Um, and after things changed at that organization, um, got some courage up and decided to pursue opportunities away from home. And that's when we moved west. And uh, I took a position with an organization in Albuquerque, New Mexico, mm -hmm. uh, with a company that was actually in bankruptcy at the time. So there was um, a lot of crisis rate related challenges uh, to that job. Um, for its short duration. And uh, that led me ultimately to um, learning a lot about crisis management and crisis communication and the opportunity then to move to another position in uh, Denver and um, a lot of good things that happened working in healthcare in Denver and ultimately the chance to acquire the consulting firm that I'm running today. Wow, amazing journey. And I love what you shared earlier, uh, that you've been blessed and lucky to have a very strong, good mentors and leaders. And I'm so glad to hear that there were actually females uh, because uh, we really need to raise up and support one another and also future generation of leaders, female leaders. And that makes tremendous, tremendous difference. And for you being part of industry that is also heavily, heavily male driven, that's the reason I feel like it's been extremely challenging, I'm sure, and, and, and highly regulated industry like a healthcare. So um, I bet uh, some days were harder than the others most of the time, right? Yeah, and, and I, I've seen kind of both sides of healthcare in my career. I've worked for nonprofit healthcare organizations. I've worked on the for-profit side, um, worked for publicly traded companies. And um, while we all shared that same mission of, you know, helping people and caring for patients, um, I saw some very interesting differences in leadership just depending on, you know, what was driving the organization, whether it was, you know, truly the mission or whether it was the profit motive. Wow. And with that, obviously, you expanded more and then divulged more. And then our paths crossed multiple times in Denver. And I remember 2016, you put phenomenal events uh, and was all about crisis, crisis prevention. And you had a great audience of executives from at uh, that time before some of them moved. Uh, Fortune 500 companies and their leadership team present and discussing something that uh, both of us felt even at two, in 2016, so many organizations are now prepared, which was all about risk management, crisis management, and crisis intervention. So do you mind elaborating a little bit what prompts you even at that time to start looking and what gaps did you start identifying before we kind of get to the most current events um, that not only obviously in Denver market, but also on a national scale uh, that really uh, start showing how, how organizations are truly not prepared? Well, you know, we've we've seen the numbers for, for many, many years about 
how many organizations are well prepared for a crisis. They've got response plans in place. They do training and exercises. They have communication plans. And that, not, that number has very stubbornly not changed really over, I would say even the last 20 years. It's, it's hovered somewhere between 45 and 55% of organizations for a long time, it, despite so many you know, huge crises that we've seen hit organizations over the years. And so one of the trends that I really started seeing back in, in 2016 and really seeing it continue to grow is, is the risk management side of the equation. And whereas communicators, we, traditionally we've been challenged with getting the attention of senior management and, and really being able to um, convince them of the need for the crisis communication plan and for making the investment in uh, preparedness. Um, but what, what I've really seen over the last few years is risk managers um, have really started to kind of sit up and pay attention to more of the crisis management side of what they do. We've seen more and more risk managers come to our firm looking for um, consulting support, looking for help with their crisis management planning, their preparedness. Um, and more of them are coming to our classes and learning about crisis communication. And, and one of the things that I found really exciting about that um, is that the risk managers tend to have the ear of the C-suite, mm. right? They work so closely with finance and with the CFO and with the, the uh, legal and compliance side of things that um, if the risk managers get it and they understand the importance of the planning and preparedness, they're, they're carrying that message to the C-suite for us. And so I don't really care how the message gets to the C-suite about the importance of the planning and preparedness, um, so long as they get it and they recognize the importance of making the investment. Very, very true. And a lot of times that doesn't necessarily get disseminated or if that gets discussed in C-suite, it doesn't necessarily go uh, further down. It doesn't not properly get implemented. So it's always something going on, right? And so now fast forward, I know you are equipped with a lot of statistics, but if you might just share a little bit based on experiences that you've seen with the current crisis, obviously this took us all of us, even the, the veterans in industry, uh, based on what I'm hearing, um, even though some of them are more prepared than the other, because we're so interconnected, it's creating domino effect. It's snowballing on all of us, right? So do you mind sharing some of those statistics and things that you're seeing and, and things that uh, could be prevented, obviously, moving forward, but things also that could be adjusted and then we can learn some really pointed lessons. Anything you feel that that, that will be relevant uh, for our audience, please. Um, sure. Um, I don't know that I have any um, any hard numbers in front of me, although I can tell you one of the things I've been working on this week, matter of fact, is um, our annual crisis report. Mm -hmm. um, as you may know, um, Institute for Crisis Management's been around for about 30 years, and we're a research-based organization. And one of the things that we've done for 30 years is produce an annual report um, that talks about crises in the news. And we look at 16 different categories of crises and, and really try to dig in and understand um, where the trends are and how things change year over year in various areas. So um, I'm writing the narrative of that report this week. I've, I've just um, kind of nailed down some of the raw numbers and seen some interesting trends year over year from, from 2018. 
of what's changed. Um, but one of the things that hasn't changed significantly in the 30 years that we've been looking at this stuff is that the vast majority of crises are not pandemics. They're not natural disasters. They're not these sudden kinds of things. Um, in fact, what they are are smoldering issues, business problems that for one reason or another um, tend to be overlooked or ignored by management until they become crises, mm. right? And they're what I call bad behavior crises. Um, they are discrimination and sexual harassment and white collar crime and, and all these various kinds of things that for whatever reason tend to management leadership looks the other way um, until all hell breaks loose basically and they've got a full blown crisis on their hands. Um, and, and that hasn't changed with this year's numbers, even with, you know, some of the, the things that we've seen occurring over the last couple of years. Um, if anything, this year, it's even a bigger number of smoldering issues and crises that are dominating the news headlines um, than it is the natural disasters and the sudden crisis type things. Um, but, you know, one of the things I wanted to just talk about was really talking about the power of, of communication because it really has the power to change lives for the better, um, personal lives, professional lives, organizations, um, because communication is, is multi-sensory, right? It's, it's sight, it's sound, it's touch, it's delivered by so many media, um, radio, television, print, online. It really has the power to change hearts and minds and drive behavior, good and bad. You know, in the last... In the last few weeks, we've certainly seen the power of communication driving both good and bad behaviors and some misinformation and disinformation that's been coming um, out of Washington, D.C. that has driven individual behaviors that are dangerous, right? Did we ever think we'd see in our lifetime that companies like Clorox would have to put out messages saying, don't drink bleach, right, in such blunt terms? because of the musings of one individual. But, but what that really demonstrates is the power of communication and the power that one person's words can have over what we think, what we believe, and, and how we behave. You know, but we've also seen over, over the years great communicators that can help us keep fear at bay and really rally us for the common good. You know, we can go back many, many years to World War II, for example, and, and think about how Franklin Roosevelt harness the power of radio, right, and, and very powerful messaging to drive the behaviors that were needed to win a war, right, a huge war. But he understood the power of language, and he understood how he could use language to drive understanding and acceptance and support of the sacrifices that needed to be, be made to win that war. And, on, and moving a little bit further, in history, um, I'm sure you're familiar, as everyone in crisis management is, with, is, with the story of Tylenol and what happened almost 40 years ago now uh, with Johnson & Johnson. And there was a few cases of um, some individual who to this day is unknown, who spiked Tylenol capsules with cyanide in Chicago and in areas of the Midwest. And Johnson & Johnson made a very courageous decision, I think, at that time um, to pull all their product off the shelf nationwide. Um, but it was not only that courageous act, but it was the powerful messaging that Johnson & Johnson put out there um, to protect innocent people that ultimately protected the company from what could have been a disaster, right? And they chose people over profit. Um, and that decision ultimately protected profit too. Right? 
absolutely a trusted brand because now people trust that brand and continue to trust the brand and they know that they will have their back in a way, right? Well, you know, I, we saw that for a long time, but recently I, I think we've seen Johnson and Johnson kind of falling off the pedestal. There um, are, fortunately uh, there are, and a lot of leadership shifts and change. And that is the other piece too, that, uh, your companies that are being up for over 100 or 70 or 80 years uh, running and the leaders of the pack, they're not anymore where they used to be. And, and it's excellent points. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's sad to see Johnson and Johnson and a company with such a, a great reputation that now they're dealing with the whole talcum powder and cancer uh, litigation. They're certainly not putting people over profit there. They've got lawsuits over opioids and, and other drugs that they've produced. But their strategy has become one of defense and not really putting the public good ahead of profit. And so, I, you know, I think they've kind of been knocked off that golden pedestal. And actually, if, I'm glad you mentioned that. And we're seeing, uh, as you mentioned, power of communication uh, and that can do greater good or can do greater damage. Uh, but comes responsibility with that uh, individual as well as brand as well for organization. And when you were mentioning using Johnson and Johnson, I was just uh, looking and, and interviewing and, and having some discussions with some of the CEOs and just even 2019 uh, Exodus and uh, transition in C-suite amongst the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies was very, very high. And yes, every year we have that Exodus going on, but then we had a rather higher increase than previous years. And one question was, why is that? Because media right now, it's much more powerful and it's much quicker and easier way to prove and show it's a lack of performance or is a lack of um, profits over people or is, are you are you meeting stakeholders uh, expectations? Are you following, you know, the orders in terms of walking the talk and, and, and then, then very strong leadership um uh, flagship of organization and expectations that go with that. And we see so much shift. And, uh, and in some ways, it's good that some of those shifts have been made, but some of them are also being extremely detrimental and, and echoing even more so now with what is happening in 2020 with the, with the end of the first quarter. And, and now we're in the second quarter and, and we're seeing implications of those actions from previous year and previous years, let alone pandemics itself. So it's a chaotic, isn't it? it? It is. And it's interesting that you bring up CEO turnover. Um, that's something that we look at in our annual report. And the, the consulting firm Challenger Grain Christmas actually tracks CEO turnover on an annual basis. And we look at their report every year. And what they found is in 2019, there was the highest level of CEO turnover that they've seen in over a decade. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe the number was 1,460 CEOs that they tracked that changed jobs last year. Um, and it's interesting. And while a lot of those, those, um, those departures were relatively uneventful, what Challenger is finding, and I agree with them, is that finally boards of directors are starting to hold CEOs and executives more accountable for bad behavior, right? For personal transgressions, for professional transgressions. And so we saw CEOs being being held to a higher standard last year, right? The, the CEO of McDonald's Corporation was fired last year for having an inappropriate relationship and also had to give up a board seat uh, at Walmart over that same issue. And so we saw a number of CEOs who 
who were finally being held to the high standard that the rest of us have always been held to. And it's really encouraging to me to see to see boards finally stepping up, if you will, and, and really starting to hold people accountable. Yes, and it's refreshing change, but again, as you as you as you know, when damage is also done, sometimes just by their departure, things don't get immediately better. And some things take years, depending on implications and reason behind it. Uh, and then when we're also adding vulnerability and we're in a jeopardized brand and quality of the brand, like we mentioned in Johnson and Johnson, um, it, it is very, very hard to also as a consumer or as a you know, partner or, or as, a, as a colleague who look at things uh, through the lens that we were able to look at prior uh, situation that happens. So it's sometimes, that, again, those things are much, much harder to fix. And, and it's much harder to regain that loyalty and trust and, and support. But on the positive note, uh, I feel like this is also a great opportunity and, and a lot of opportunities to really show what's possible. And, and I'm so glad that you're driving um, the transformation that is needed from so multiple levels uh, and associations that you're involved with. So do you mind sharing something that you see um, that will be trending very quickly, very soon as a result of um, landscape that we're in, and specifically in the United States? Well, it, it, it's funny that you bring up change and, and transformation because now we're talking about culture, right? Mm -hmm. um, and how difficult it can be to change the culture of an organization. And another one of the encouraging things that came out of Challenger's numbers was that organizations are, um, a, a plurality of them now are going to the outside of the organization to find a new CEO. Um, and, I, you know, culture is a living, breathing thing in an organization, and it's going to change and adapt with or without you. And I truly believe that after a crisis has occurred, right, um, new outside leadership is really vital um, if culture change is needed to really drive that organization forward, um, that it can be really, really difficult for a leader that's been ingrained in an organization for decades to be able to change the culture in ways that, that it absolutely has to change. I mean, look at Wells Fargo, for example, three CEOs in four years after their crisis that began in 2016, um, but they were internal, you know, CEOs, and now they're finally looking to the outside because they recognize that in order to really change that culture and to take it, it the direction it needs to go, they need someone new, someone fresh from the outside of the organization that's going to bring different thinking. And so I think one of the trends that we're going to see, and I think it's a hopeful one, is more organizations are going to recognize that they have the power to drive the culture in the right direction. And, and even more important, they have a responsibility to take and, and be accountable for that culture and take the actions necessary to, to drive it the direction that it needs to go, really to build trust, to build reputation, um, and ultimately to protect and grow the organization. That is so true. I was recently speaking at one of the events uh, around the data management and from perspective from C-suite, from leadership, and we were looking and I purposely did something just to create a ha moment uh, to compare Fortune 10 in 2009 versus Fortune 10 in 2019. Uh -huh. And when you look at just how much top 10 largest companies 
that are not even remotely like how many of them they're still on the scale there and 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 which wow. positions they're taking and and where they are and 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 what shift occurred and and where they are down even on the fortune 500 scale uh that also shows um not only the lack of obviously understanding that things needs to change as people demand consumers everything else around externally changing as well uh, and those implications are very detrimental. And of course, then we're going then survival mode, trying to survive. And then we start getting tempted to cut the corners and do all those bad behaviors that actually get caught up with all of us uh, when, we, when we look at the, what is the system or industry or company being built upon. And, and, and it's really vicious cycle. Uh, but I also feel like always somehow people are last. We're looking technology first. We're looking maybe process here and there, but elements of people are always some way, somehow put on the, on the last uh, consideration. And, and, and I really believe that this pandemic uh, is going to create a lot of rethinking on that aspect as well. Do you mind sharing a little bit about that um, when we touched on culture and crisis and communication, because everything is obviously interconnected. How do you see the people and employees in general, great talent, great successful, brilliant minds are playing and, and, and hardships that are experiencing from your perspective? Well, a couple of things, and, and then I'll share a story about one of my clients. I, I think when this pandemic starts calming down, we're going to see organizations and leaders fall into one of two camps. Um, as I said, half of organizations don't have a plan at all. I think we're going to see some leaders look at all of this and go, you know, oh my gosh, we we screwed up. We should have had a plan. Um, we need to have a plan. And they're going to recognize and they're going to take action to to make an investment in crisis management and planning and training. Um, and they're going to put some things in place that have been needed for a long time. Um, on the other side of that, there's going to be organizations where the leaders just say, you know, wow, we dodged the bullet. Um, we, we made it through, you know, we, we winged it and we did fine. See, we don't need a plan. We don't need to spend money on that. And they'll go stick their heads back in the sand and, and until the next pandemic hits. Um, I don't think there's going to be a lot of middle ground there. They're going to go one way or the other. I think multinational corporations are going to be especially challenged because we are dealing with a global pandemic and the nature of, of of what governments are doing right now and, and the media itself really are driving communication trends from country to country. Um, and what may be considered ethical and transparent in here in the United States may be quite different to what's being communicated in a third world nation, for example. And it's really challenging, I think, for American communicators to understand the cultural differences in other countries that need to shape those messages. And it's going to be really tough, I think, for multinational companies right now um, because the message to their stakeholders in Europe or Asia, for example, may be quite different than the message to stakeholders here in the United States. I have a client that I've been working with. Uh, it's a Brazilian-based company that has a factory here in the United States. Um, and the, um, the leader of the, of the factory here in the U.S. is, a, she's Brazilian, Portuguese is her native language. Um, but I've been working with them on their messaging to uh, primarily to employees here in the U.S. in that factory um, and, and really adapting messages. So not only have I been taking messaging written in Portuguese from their Brazilian leaders and um, making sure we've got good translations, right, to really adjusting the tone of those messages 
to make sure that they're resonating with American audiences. Uh, and it's funny because my client, my client, as I said, her native language is Portuguese. Um, she tells me that the messages I'm writing for her make her sound like she has a better mastery of English than she really thinks she does. <laughs> she said, you make me sound so good. <laughs> Um, but it, it's been so important and it's been a real education for me reading these messages written originally by Brazilians for Brazilians um, and, and, and how they're just slightly different than what the message needs to be for, for Americans. Um, so it's really been um, very educational for me being able to help that company and help them adapt that messaging to different cultures. So very true. You touched on something, uh, how localization of the product and services also needs to be communicated for target specific market. And then how do we can really also start thinking globally and, and not just multinational companies because a product, even for small to medium sized companies, is being shipped internationally. You need to really understand your audience and, and, and how do you as a brand uh, continue to engage that Um uh, growth or expansion or demands or specific uh, segments of those markets. And communication obviously comes in being bilingual, multilingual, and, and often um, being asked to do certain things in different languages myself. I have to be very, very cognizant because even though sometimes we just take things on autopilot and, and, and in reality, this is really true and really has the meaning. But what kind of meaning, what kind of messaging, what kind of tone it is? Is it too strong or is that uh, disrespectful? Is it going to be um, perceived certain way? And I mean, it just it just a vicious cycle of, 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 again, ignorance sometimes because we just sometimes want to just do things fast. And speed is not always necessarily our best advocate. And speaking of crisis, when we're in the midst of the crisis, uh, and I'm glad with your last experience in healthcare, with frontline workers and so much that is going on that we're seeing that is happening, I feel like that also communication of that crisis, some states are doing better than the others to inform uh, citizens and, and general public. But I'm also seeing a lot of interesting methods of how is PR done during this time. And do you mind sharing some of the things? I'm sure you can depict very quickly what do you see and, and, and obviously some of those PR, um, not just even content, but just the way it's chosen to be communicated and how is it being communicated have also a tremendous weight. So do you mind sharing some perspective on that, please? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've been saving all of the messages that I've been receiving as a customer from a wide variety of organizations, everything from hotels and airlines to, you know, really anybody that I've done business with personally, professionally. So I'm gathering all those to do some, some research and study on those a little bit later this year. Um, but you talk about the speed with which we need to communicate. And, you know, we used to have the luxury of time um, to really think about the message and get the message right. And we just don't have that anymore. Technology has really taken away that cushion and it's forced us to work much faster to develop and deliver messages and, and, and hope that we get it right. Um, the thing that we have to remember today is that I think people will be more forgiving if we bungle the message, but we communicate it quickly than if we wait until we have all the facts we can possibly get and then communicate. I think they're much less forgiving of that dearth of information and, and waiting, right? Nature abhors a vacuum. And so 
I think it's more important for us to step in and communicate and, and risk getting it a little bit wrong um, because we can always adjust our sales and, and, and adjust our messaging and, and kind of correct things as we go forward, especially when it's a long-term issue um, like this virus is. But one of the most challenging things I think for communicators these days, um, not only in the pandemic, but, but in any crisis, is that we have to work with attorneys, right? Um, and, and we have to be able to work with them effectively. Um, they play a very important role in shaping our communications. And they are by nature and by training, worst case scenario thinkers. Um, and I'm of the mind that every crisis management team, every crisis communication team really, needs to have a worst case scenario thinker on the team. Right, communicators by nature tend to be optimistic people. Right, we we tend to to see the positive side of things, but you need someone who can step back and say, well, wait a minute, what if this happens, or what if that happens? You need that that pessimistic kind of mindset um, to help you think about all the different possibilities that that may happen with any kind of a crisis. Um, and and we disagree with attorneys a lot. Right, communicators and attorneys, we don't always get along, and that's okay. Um, we need to debate and we need to disagree about things, um, but we can lose precious time debating the merits of transparency and, and really, you know, debating, do we say this, do we apologize, do we not apologize? Um, and that's why the planning and the preparedness becomes so important because part of what you have to plan is what's the messaging strategy going to be with this type of a crisis? Um, if we if we have a, a, an outbreak of disease in our plant, what's our strategy going to be? And you develop those initial message points way ahead of time and you get embedded by management and you can get the lawyers to weigh in and have them signed off on so that when the crisis does strike, you've got those initial messages ready to go. You don't have to wait for the lawyers. They've already signed off on it. Right? And so you can move very quickly, at least with the initial messaging and, and, and what that does for you is it buys you time. Mm -hmm. Right, it buys you time to do your fact gathering and really start understanding how the crisis is evolving um, and how your messaging needs to evolve. Because these days people have just n zero patience and, and no attention span. They want answers, they want them right now. They don't want to wait an hour, they don't want to wait a day. Um, and, and, and if we don't, you know, feed that beast um, and give them even an acknowledgement very quickly, um, they're going to turn against us um, and turn against our brand very quickly. So at the very least, we need to be able to say, look, we, we know there's a problem. We, we recognize that something's going on here and we're looking into it and, and we'll be sharing more information as quickly as we can. Right? You just have to acknowledge um, people's need to know what's going on. Excellent points, and I'm so glad you um, mentioned specifically the ones of how it's important to quickly act, and we don't necessarily have to give everything perfect uh, out, but as long as we're genuine, as long as we are transparent, as long as we are uh, having the best intentions at heart, people can feel that. People feel in your voice. People feel in your body language. Uh, people feel it in choices of your words. If there's written communication, any shape and form, people are so quick and astute, and they can really tell. Um, they also can very quickly tell, and I'm glad you're saving these messages and communications because I've seen some, and I was a little bit puzzled, you know, uh, by some of them that I received, and some of them are more panicky, more unsettling than more affirming and confirming, and right now I feel like are you part of the problem 
or you're proud of the solution. And I don't think we need a more panic. And I really think also it's true testament to leadership and maturity. And with some of the things that I've really strongly believe and focus on is that emotional capacity of individual team and organization, not just intelligence. Intelligently, we can have all of that dialed in perfectly and intellectually, but if we don't have a capacity and we're in the exponential crisis that constantly is exhausting us. And right now we're in a marathon phase. We're not in sprint. We cannot be sprinting. We're, we're killing ourselves. We're exhausting ourselves. Look at a healthcare system, even not in, you know, just New Yorkers and, and other parts of the country. Um, capacity is so fragile. It's so small. And if we're not having understanding from administration with frontline workers and people that are caregivers, yet we have these orders and expectations and constant nudging, you need to do this and that, you're not helping. You are actually adding part of a bigger, greater problem. You're not offering support that individuals, team, and overall organization needs. And the reason I'm bringing this up, I just dealt with something similar a few weeks ago. And and there was debriefing later on outside of all of the environment confidentially. And people are more prone to make mistakes. So if you are going to get care, you don't want to run on top of all of that. Now, finally, you're getting care that you need and also mistake and in, in treatment or whatever might be the case. Because it's so easy to make it. It's because if you're not calm, not grounded, not rested, not in an environment that is loving, caring, supportive, or compassionate, uh, it's going to be very, very challenging. And I know that different industries have a different scope and look on that. But uh, I just feel like it's it's just tipping point for to a lot of organizations right now, and and yeah. very flammable, very flammable situations. Absolutely. And, you know, you look at the, the frontline healthcare workers and, and what they're dealing with these days. And, and one of the things we teach in crisis management is when you've got a response team, you've got to have backup teams. And every position on that crisis management team has to have at least one or two backups because nobody can function 24-7, right, without sleep, without rest, and, and make good decisions. I mean, they've found that the, the best of us can function only for about 18 hours right, without sleep, and, and then our decision-making capacity starts to fall off, and, and that's when you don't want people to be making bad decisions, when they're making decisions about taking care of human life. Um, but kind of along with that, you're right, people are, they're forgiving of mistakes in communication, and, and as long as you're being transparent, you're being, um, you're showing empathy and, and compassion, um, they're going to be a lot more forgiving. Um, one of the other things that we, we tend to fight with lawyers about is, should we apologize? Mm. Um, and uh, a, a lot of lawyers are of the mind that apology equals admitting guilt, right? And they don't want to do that because they're afraid of losing in court. Well, interestingly, what, what healthcare organizations are learning um, and have over the last few years is the power of the apology to reduce or eliminate liability. Very often when a patient sues a doctor or sues a hospital, it's not because they want money. It's because they want validation. They want someone to say, I made a mistake and I'm sorry. And what these, these organizations are finding is when they apologize to the patient, the patient doesn't sue, right? The crisis goes away. And so really savvy attorneys are, are figuring out that you can express empathy, you can express regret, 
Um, and you can apologize to people for making mistakes without exposing the organization to undue financial liability or legal liability. That is such a great point, and I'm so glad you shared that because if we're always looking uh, just to do whatever we need to protect ourselves or, or, or cover uh, all the bases, that is not great practice to do business in any conditions. And what I'm finding, and I'm sure you'll find it the same thing, definitely not during the crisis time. Yes, you want it to follow the process. You want to make sure you're checking all the boxes, but that is not the main reason. You also want to make sure what is being offered and how is offered, how is delivered, what is really organization doing, how you're moving forward, how you are being responsible ethically, morally, socially, uh, as a business, uh, regardless of what you provide, direct service or products or whatever, uh, that, that, that really is not jeopardizing um, due to whatever might be happening at the present time. Right. As long as we're trying to focus on doing the right things for the right reasons um, and, and admitting, yes, we're going to make mistakes. We're human. We're not perfect. Um, but we're always going to come back and try and, and, and correct whatever we did wrong and, and make it right um, and move forward and do better next time. And so the power of good crisis communication is acknowledging that there's a problem, talking about what you're going to do to fix it and what you're going to do to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Excellent. And one thing I'm noticing, and I just want to ask your take on this, the more and more actually larger companies, CEOs, uh, Jumping on the videos, uh, giving direct message, not only to their employees, but their customers and consumers more and more showing their faces, being more approachable. And I'm not saying all of them, but what I love about the ones that are doing that, um, you feel more relatable. You really feel like you're being truly, generally considered and taken care of and, and, and hearing directly from the leader of organization, doesn't matter how large it is. It's not anymore. I'm too busy and I'm not invisible or I, I don't have time, but it's also finding a time, finding desire to truly connect with the global audience and, and share and, and genuinely show and express interest or disclose that communication PR and not have somebody else do that. Uh, just so that they are um, taking and, and that synergy with the message. I find it to be extremely powerful. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? Um, I think it depends on the person. Um, I've seen some leaders that are very uncomfortable in front of a camera mm. uh, and uncomfortable with scripted messages. And so they come across as very stiff and, um, and, and just not honest. Um, and, and, it, and I think it does more harm than good for some of them um, that try to do that. Um, there's others, on the other hand, I think that have a very natural comfort in front of the camera um, that can relate very well. They, they do well with a teleprompter or, or they're very good with a not tightly scripted, but, but well thought out message that, that they can express um, you know, on camera, and I agree with you, I've seen some really good ones over the last several weeks, and I've seen a, a, a few that, that you know, just made me shudder and think, oh my gosh, you know, who told you that was a good idea? Um, I had someone I worked with uh, years ago when I worked in, in corporate healthcare. Um, this individual had been our general counsel, right? He was the lead attorney for a multi-billion dollar corporation, and he was promoted to be president of one of our subsidiary companies our biggest subsidiary. 
um, he recognized that he was going to have to communicate in front of a camera, that he was going to have to to talk to groups, and that because of his training and his experience, he was very uncomfortable with that. Um, but he recognized his own shortcoming, and so he and I worked together one-on-one over a series of many sessions. It was just he and I in a camera in a, in a room with the door shut, and we practiced, right? And we practiced doing interviews and, and getting him comfortable with the camera and comfortable with the teleprompter such that he could sit down and do these kinds of things and and appear to be very credible and honest and just kind of get past that sense of discomfort that he had. Um, but some leaders come across as, as very stiff and, um, and unempathetic. Um, but I think with the right coaching and, and practice, um, almost anyone can do it and do it well. And I love that you just mentioned that again, I feel like it's a growth opportunity for everyone because we live in very different era where technology needs to be mastered across the whole organization. Working Uh from home, leveraging tools, techniques, but also everybody's voice needs to be heard. And as we're expecting communicators to do stellar job, obviously uh, our leaders are expected to do the same because those voices are very important and they need to be heard. And I love that you just said, if, if you're not where you need to be, work on it. Everybody needs to uh, make sure that they're doing their part and, and doing the most effective and most important way. So that's Absolutely. It. Effective communications is everybody's job. It's not just the communicator, but every single person in an organization from the CEO and the chairman of the board all the way on down through the organization. It's really everybody's job to get better at communicating. And that's kind of what I'm seeing in the PR right now changing because it's not anymore just the written word and press releases. It's actually these videos and the sessions and conversations, some things impromptu, some things to interviews with the different news, uh, different channels, uh, LinkedIn Lives, etc. And I also see that PR will never be the same. So quicker we embrace that internal change and transformation with ourselves, putting ourselves out of comfort zone to grow and, and, and step up to the challenge the better we're going to be and more successful. And if you don't mind uh, in closing that, please uh, just to share uh, any tips uh, for actually leaders of organizations as well as employees that you really see that will help them to move things forward from crisis to PR to communication to taking their part, right, and responsibility in it all the way to mitigating that crisis. Anything that you see as a common pattern that will really do them greater good moving forward? Sure. Um, Well, first of all, I think one of the things that that we've seen missing in in leadership um, across a lot of organizations over the years is common sense, right? Simple common sense. And unfortunately, I think we should call it uncommon sense um, because it seems to be absent in, in so many ways. Um, but I think that, that first and foremost, we have to recognize that um, the old normal is gone, right? There's gonna be a new normal and we need to start figuring out what that's gonna be right now. Because just like culture, we have the opportunity right now, a very unique opportunity to shape what that normal is gonna be, right? And to make it the normal that we want it to be, just like culture, right? Um, what normal is going to be tomorrow and next week and next year um, is going to need leadership and it's going to need very strong leadership across governments and 
uh, for-profit companies and nonprofit organizations and service organizations. Um, and we've got this once in a lifetime chance to really deliberately shape what this world is gonna look like and what normal is gonna be. But I think we have to start talking about it now, even though we may still be in the thick of the crisis in some areas, um, we have to take some time away from dealing with the crisis to start talking about our future. Mm -hmm. right? um, and the more time we can spend now thinking about um, and talking about what that future is going to be, I think the better it's going to be for all of us. Beautiful. That is such a wonderful and powerful point. Uh, and, and I really hope that in months to come, we'll see less of truly uh, of those big crises and more progressive uh, moving forward uh, plans and um, organizations that are really not now it's just surviving, but truly thriving. Deb, it was an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to our follow-up conversation soon. Well, thank you, Isabella. It's been a real honor to uh, join you today on the podcast. And uh, I look forward to reconnecting with you. Sounds great.